0: Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Investing from A to Z podcast. I'm your host, Steph Bodrini. We provide straightforward information by bringing excellent guests with real-world experience in all topics related to commercial real estate investing. And in today's episode, we're talking with two partners who have recently raised $16 million in one day. Obviously, that took some time to get to that level, so we're going to learn exactly what to do in order for all of us to get to that level. We will also cover what are some of the major lessons that they wish they knew earlier in their career. We are chatting with Mark Schuler and Josh Welsh of SGRE Investments. Here we go! Mark and Josh, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate you guys taking time out of your busy schedule, closing deals. First, why don't you tell us a little bit about you?
1: I am Mark Schuler, and I am a practicing architect in the state of Washington. I'm also licensed in Texas. And I also run my own uh, private equity firm for uh, real estate acquisitions. So I've been doing that for about eight years. I've been practicing for about 40 years. Last eight years, been doing a lot of deals, trying to close them before interest rate starts going up. But uh, you know, it's you, you do enough of them, you become a deal junkie, and I guess that's kind of where I fall right now. So,
2: I'm uh, Josh Welch. I'm co-founder of Three Pillars Capital, we're a Houston-based uh, private equity firm uh, focused primarily in multifamily assets. You know, we we look for underserved, undervalued assets that need a little bit of love not uh, not things that are falling apart but things that could just be managed a little bit better and modernized so you know we have a pretty big renovation component to all of our projects where we um you know focusing on the c-class products what we call it uh workforce housing really and then we modernize those units and get the rents higher and that's what that's what generates the return for our investors you know that's from an extremely top level of, of what we do but yeah that's 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 me as
0: three pillars And uh, the friend that recommended that I interview you guys mentioned that you were able to raise $16 million in one day. Can one of you share how did that come about and how you arrived at that level?
1: I'll I'll start again. You know, that friend, he asked me the same question and I'm going to give you the same answer. It's like, I'm not sure we know how we did it, but uh, (laughs) we managed to, uh, do this crazy raise where we kind of put it out. And we had done a lot of preparatory legwork. And I mean, we both have a very deep database of investors. We've done enough deals now that we have a lot of frequent flyers. But also as you do a deal, I mean, your database just continues to grow as people talk to friends and family. And so, you know, we just teed it up. We do a very detailed the deal deck offering memorandum that we put out. And then, you know, we do a lot of preparatory emails, getting people in the space to understand that the deal is coming. And um, at this point, we're raising, we're over-raising on every deal. And everybody knows that we're over-raising, so they're committing, you know, fast and early on the deals. And it just kind of, this one was kind of a record for us. I mean, at one point we were, I think, raising a million dollars an hour for eight straight hours. <laughs> and um, it, uh, yeah, it was just kind of crazy. I mean, we shut it down in 24 hours. Josh was kind of very intimately there getting pummeled with emails and phone calls. Once don't you take point on this, Josh, and kind of relate your experience.
2: Sure, it didn't always used to be that way. I think a lot of it is, track record's the probably the biggest thing you can have in this business. Um, yeah. Outside of a flashy deal deck or presentation, if you've performed and you've given a good return, that word will spread like wildfire. And, you know, our investors talk and they tell their friends. And, you know, the mantra that Mark and I follow is you're only as good as your last deal. You know, if you have a deal that goes sideways or down and, you know, people will remember that and it's going to impact your ability to raise money, obviously, in the future. So that's why we were very diligent in our underwriting process, what we focus on, what we look for. And, you know, sometimes we'll go two months without having a deal and that's okay because- I'd rather not. I'd rather have the right deal that I know is going to get me the the return I need, than have something that could put my investors at risk and that relationship that we've had for so long that takes so much time to build. So it's really, you know, getting the track record and, and people knowing how you communicate. Communication's big too. You can't just say, "Hey, I'm, I'm I'm raising money for a deal. I need it in a week. Here you go." I mean, you kind of have to. You got to get people familiar with the deal phone calls and emails so that when you open up the funding, hey, we're ready to go, those people have already been primed and warmed up, so.
1: You know, one point I'll add to what Josh was just saying is, you know, experience counts for a lot in this line of work. And when you've done as many deals as we have, you have credibility with people who look at you. There are a lot of folks I mentor who are just trying to get into the game and they might be a lab tech in UW hospital or something like that. And it's just really hard for people to like wrap their head around the fact that your day job is kind of working in a lab doing statistical analysis, but now you're doing real estate on the, as a side hustle.
0: Yeah. It's really hard
1: to get people to invest money with you. But after you've done 10, 12, 14 deals, I mean, it's a real natural pitch for people to see you that way. And then also we're dealing with more and more sophisticated investors all the time. And so these are really smart people who know how to read a balance sheet and know how to read a a deal deck and they make decisions very rapidly. They're also writing bigger and bigger checks. So it used to be, we'd get $25,000 checks. Now we're getting two and $3 million checks. And so it makes the raise go a lot more rapidly as a consequence. It also creates a sense of urgency for the folks who aren't writing those kinds of checks because they they know that this raise is going to fill very quickly. And so they got to get in really fast. So it's kind of a self-perpetuating thing. We don't try to frame it that way, but it's, naturally, no matter what product type you're in, if you're doing a syndication, this is how it worked.
0: agree. And from what I can tell in these seven minutes so far is that seems like you guys are good partners. How did you guys meet and how did you, this partnership come about?
2: Uh, So yeah, Mark and I've been working together for years now. We've done several deals together. You know, we met, I think it was the first deal was uh, 96 unit deal down in Houston yeah. Mark was looking for assets in Houston and that's where our company is based. And so naturally we kind of just crossed paths and um, kind of decided, Hey, let's, let's team up and maybe go in on this one or if not this one, the next one and just kept the relationship going and here we are 10 deals later or whatever. <laughs> I don't even know. I mean, yeah. I, mean then, I don't know, Mark, what's your take on how we met? So I live in the Puget
1: Sound, anywhere in the West coast, but Seattle, especially the price of real estate is just, insane. You're looking at legitimate three cap going in rates and you can't make any money doing that. And also as a syndicator, I'm at an extreme disadvantage because I have to pay returns to (laughs) my investors. There are lots and lots and lots of institutional investors out there that their return profile is a lot different than mine. And so I just sort of gave up on looking at stuff in the Puget Sound and after a thorough analysis of the entire country, I decided to settle in on Houston, and I think what happened was I was doing a reconnaissance trip down there, and one of Josh's employees was a broker I knew in a former life, and he introduced us. You know, we're both engineers, we're both Michigan grads, think a lot alike, you know, temperamentally we're the same, so it uh, <laughs> just kind of was a natural natural partnership.
0: So it was basically, okay, let's try this deal together and then see how it goes, and it worked out pretty well, and you like each other's personalities, and that's how you guys continued growing. Is that yeah. a fair assessment?
1: Pretty good, you know. Yeah. Assessment, yeah.
0: So I'm curious to know what are some of the things that you both wish you knew earlier in your career to expedite things for other people that you think that is important for them to know today.
2: Hmm. Hmm. I, I would say the big thing. So you know, our company we're a vertically integrated company. So our, our management is basically aligned with the asset management side. So we've got three pillars, which you know does the buying and the selling. And then there's Greenline Management, which is our in-house management company. And I, I think the first thing I learned or something I wish I would have known from day one is how important process is to the operations and how important the operations just are in general. Um, I think there's a huge misconception in this industry that um, you know if you can raise money, you can be a sponsor and go run a deal. And the more of those you can do, the better and more successful you'll be. But the reality is, if, if you don't know how to operate these assets day over day, year over year, um, they can quickly go south on you. And so a lot of people, especially in this market, have gotten bailed out by rising prices. Yeah, um, There will be a day where prices will flatline, stabilize, maybe even go down a little bit. And those who pay top dollar for something that are not running it well will not get bailed out. And so, I think that's the, the biggest lesson that I wish I could have put more emphasis on in the beginning is how to get a better process in your operations.
1: Yeah, I think uh, for me, my whole family is in commercial real estate. I have five family members who are commercial brokers, and one of my nephews is a quantitative analyst for a private equity firm. And it's just kind of what we do it's a family business. And so, I'm really familiar with the temperament of folks in the commercial real estate industry, let's shall we say there's a lot of male energy going on <laughs> in this uh, line of work. And I just wanted to not be that because I find that there's a lot of cowboy attitude and a lot of unsubstantiated risk-taking that a lot of people do in this line of work. And they just don't slow down and really analyze because I don't know why. I mean, I, I, I'm analytical by nature, but uh, either it's uh, wild ass chutzpah or just, you know, not knowing how to underwrite a deal or whatever, but you just see people taking really crazy risks. Josh and I have seen deals where it just, it was impossible. The, the numbers could not possibly work. You'd have to have 40 to 50% rent bumps to support the returns that they were, Quoting to their investors. And it's like, this is crazy. I don't, you know, lenders aren't going to lend on this. Maybe they'll find some D level lender who's going to like throw some money at them. I don't get it. Hmm. So, I, as I said, I mentor a lot of people and I really emphasize just getting a firm foundation in the industry. And there's plenty of nine month certificate programs or masters and real estate development that you can pursue. You can also just take onesie, Z courses, CCIM, or any of these uh, graduate programs allow you to sit in on a course and, and audit it. But too many people just wing it on a hope and a prayer, and I don't know what else. So I just counsel people, like, you got to get educated. I mean, you just can't waltz into this industry where there's legitimately tens of millions of dollars taking place in a transaction. And think you can fake it until you make it. It just doesn't happen. So either get a mentor or get educated or get a master's degree. I don't know what, but you got to build on your knowledge base and, you know, yeah, experience is a great teacher, but some of it, you just got to sit down and read about. So that's kind of what I usually tell people. And, you know, and that's what I did. You know, it's not what I wish I had done. It is what I did. And I feel like I kind of propelled my career forward by 10 years. The other thing that in this industry, you have to learn how to do, you have to have, learn how to raise money properly. So I joined a, a mastermind to help me with that and educate me. And one year, I probably shaved 10 years off my learning curve
0: mm-hmm.
1: to figure out how to raise money effectively. And I mean, that raise that you talked about earlier, it's fruits of my labor from the last year. To Josh's point, figure out the process of raising money properly. You can really raise a lot of money. And that can be with anything in, in this industry or running this a private equity firm. Process is everything. You don't want to make it up all the time. You don't want to wing it. I mean, and you have a fiduciary responsibility to your investors. and If you screw up, you're done. You're never going to do another deal. So,
0: You both don't know how much I appreciate your response because ever since uh, we started this podcast almost three years ago, I've been saying that people are, Buying deals at these cap rates, and as soon as five percent vacancy happens, that's it. They're done. And I think that's potentially coming around the corner because of the interest rates, and obviously commercial loans you get you know yep. five, seven year fixed rates. So, what do now, you guys what you think? Do
1: is bake that kind of a vac- I mean, we're in a rising interest rate environment. So exactly. you need to alter your underwriting to account for that. And too many people are not. They're still yeah. smoking crack or something. I don't know, they but are. Uh, they are got these fictitious vacancy rates and this overly optimistic, you know, yeah. rent Underwriting. Raise. It's just like, you're, you're kidding me. This, this is just never going to happen. What What is wrong with you? And, yeah. it, and it often comes down to lack of experience.
2: I mean, you can make some of these deals work. It's just the reality is you can't sacrifice your underwriting Well, you know, to be true, right? Like, like Mark was saying, very rarely can you get a 40 to 50% rent bump in the first year after takeover. I mean, it does happen, but very, very rare, but to go in and project that as what you're going to achieve as a base case, that's, that's dangerous. So instead bring down the expectations and be real about that with your investors. Maybe you can comfortably do 20 to 25%. Your IR is going to come from a 20 to a 17. You know, most people probably still will be okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. Project that and overachieve and say, hey, I'm going to get a 50% rent bump. You fall on your face and then you got a lot of angry investors saying that you misled me.
0: So what kind of vacancy do you underwrite normally? Let's say in this environment today, what would you underwrite a deal? Uh, let's say right now it's currently 90, 95% occupied. What would you underwrite for a potential hit in the economy?
2: So we kind of, uh, our projects are a little different, since we have a heavy renovation component, we're forcing okay. a lot of the units pretty consistently for, the, for about a year and a half. So we underwrite for about 80% economic. So call it 90% occupied, another 10% for delinquency. And then we slowly ramp that up over time. So we probably stable out about around 90, probably 90%.
0: Okay.
1: Yeah. But in the first two years, we have a much higher vacancy rate. Mm-hmm account mm-hmm. for the renovation period. So sometimes okay. we're as high as 35% vacancy. Yep. And that's just prudent underwriting. The reality is I think across our renos what is it average, Josh? Maybe 14, 15%? Or do we get higher at time?
2: No, about 85 is the lowest we'll go. I don't, it depends. I mean these things are living breathing things. Sometimes sure. you get a, a month where a bunch of people move out. Sometimes you get months where not many people move out, but 15% is probably the lowest we would ever drop it, you know, from, from a renovation standpoint.
1: Yeah. So, you know, you want to under and over deliver and Absolutely. that's one of our fail safe metrics to make sure we're covering our butts in, in the underwriting is to program in that high vacancy rate. And it's just prudent business practice. It stuns me that so many people don't get it.
0: agree. And I'm so happy that you guys touched on this topic because sometimes I feel like I'm the crazy one warning people. (laughs) But uh, it's so great to see people like you guys that are actually raising $60 million in one day because obviously you were successful before. And so people like you coming in and saying that is so important. And I really appreciate that. So let's touch a little bit on architecture. What should some operators keep in mind with regards to, let's say, commercial architecture? Let's say they're either building something from scratch or renovating a commercial building, Mark?
1: Well, now you're getting in my wheelhouse. First of all, there is, this is the building code. I don't know if you can see that. It's a three three inch, three ring binder. So uh, obviously there's, there's some rules of engagement. Somebody who doesn't come out of a construction or engineering background, they're devoid of the context of how we operate. Within the built environment, so many people just go out there and do whatever they want, and they don't understand that there's a higher authority. There's a building department, and I have saved more house flippers than I care to think about because they got in over their skiddy tips, way over, just screwing around, putting a house together without any context, without any understanding of the building code. next thing you know, they're getting red tech, you know, or they buying product that the floor joists are in the dirt in the crawl space or something. And that happened to me one time with uh, one of my clients and he ended up going bankrupt. Wow. So it is a big boy's game and you've got to play by big boy rules. And too many people have too immature an attitude about it and they get in trouble. So, you know, what I usually tell people is if you don't know it, you need to hire somebody who knows and understands the context, but just don't go out there and screw around because people can die. I've had yeah. over the course of my career, six people die in my project and oh. you know, stuff happens. I've had tradesmen lose fingers because they ran it across a saw blade. I mean, it's a dangerous work environment with a lot of toxicity floating around in the air. You should never have a child on a job site. I see mothers come in, mm-hmm. in there with their babies and I'm just like, mm-hmm. get off my job site. So You need to understand that you're operating within a serious context that is very rule-laden. I work in one of the most regulated industries on the planet. If you don't understand the rules of engagement, hire somebody to guide you through it. You know, you'll be much better off as a consequence. And you won't piss off your local building jurisdiction because they'd be happy to red tag you.
2: (laughs) That's what they're in the business to do.
1: Yeah, I got to justify their existence. So. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, thank you so much, both of you. I really appreciate you coming over and sharing your amazing knowledge and insights with us. Is there anything else that you think that is important for our audience to know that we haven't covered yet?
1: Well, don't let me be a Debbie Downer here. This is a great industry. I love doing what I do for a living. You're impacting people's lives. You're working in the built environment. It's creative. Both from a design and engineering point of view, but from the the creativity and putting the deal together, it's really exciting to me, anyways. And I'm sort of a nerdy, heady guy, so I like that kind of thing. But uh, you know, it's a it's a fast paced, fascinating industry that um, you can do for a long, long time and and never get bored. And you'll learn stuff every day. You got to learn it though. You know, you really do. Go back to my original point. You just don't wing it. Learn how to do it correctly, and you can do this for a long time. But parroting what Josh said earlier, you're only as good as your last deal. So if you screw up, see ya. So yeah, just kind of have a, a really balanced view of the industry. And you know, everybody gets excited about it when they first get into it, and it's like I just calm down. You know, you got a long career ahead of you. you, know, you can do it. Long time. I mean, you don't become a brain surgeon overnight. So, what makes you think you can be a private equity guy
0: overnight? <laughs> exactly.
2: I would. Uh, I, I would just add that most people don't become deal sponsors. Usually, the track for most people is they educate themselves about how this business works and they, you know, invest with other other sponsors, other people leading deals because it is a uh, double time job. Um, and I think a lot of people don't understand that it's very yeah. difficult to do this in our capacity if you're doing a nine to five or whatever. So I would say learn how to vet sponsors and understand what separates a good one from a, from a mediocre one or a bad one. Because they're not all deal sponsors are the same. And obviously track record is a big part of that. So do your homework if you're, before you invest with somebody. It's probably the takeaway I'd want to give your audience.
0: Yeah, and talk to people. Find who has invested with them in the past. How did it go? Do they have good communication like you guys mentioned earlier and things like that? Awesome. How can our listeners get in touch with you guys?
2: You, know, you can email us at uh, 3pillarscapitalgroup.com, our website. You can check out our portfolio, kind of what we've done. And my email is joshw at pillarscapitalgroupcom
1: And uh, you can check me out at sgreinvestmentsplural.com. Um, you can also email me at mark at sgreinvestments.com.
0: Thank you so much, Mark and Josh. I really appreciate your time.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: And if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our newsletter, super short and straightforward, at monicarlorei.com. And I would also love to thank one of our latest reviewers, Zenu Warrior. Interesting and to the point. Love Steph's approach to delivering factual, interesting, nonsense information on real estate investing. Love starting my day listening to an episode while on my morning commute. Highly recommend. Thank you so much, Zen Warrior, for making the time to write us a review. We really, really appreciate it. And I will see you next time.